Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com slash give. Why don't you just go ahead and stand as we read scripture. We come each week to hear the word of God, knowing that we live in the midst of liars and that we are men and women of unclean lips. And therefore, we need constantly to devote ourselves to the word of God because his word is truth. And this week our text is taken from his book, the third chapter of Genesis, the third verses 14 through 24. This is the word of the Lord and it is eternally true. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children, yet your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Then to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat from it, cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread, till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Now the man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, The man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And now he might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. So he drove the man out, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword, which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. So here we have the first things, the beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And we have gone through the first couple of chapters of Genesis and seen that God provided Adam and Eve everything they could possibly want. Everywhere they turned was beauty. In their relationship, there wasn't a hint of alienation or anger or selfishness. Eve was perfectly submissive to Adam, and Adam was perfectly loving to Eve. But Satan, through the form of a serpent, came, and Satan deceived Eve, and Adam then was uh, wheedled and cajoled by his wife, and he gave in to her, he ate. And the minute Adam ate, sin came to man. The minute Adam ate, you and I were 
received a death sentence. The minute Adam ate, you and I were born depraved with original sin. And this is the condition of our hearts and our lives that Pascal, the great French mathematician from centuries ago, said, without the knowledge of this sin of Adam and the way it's corrupted us, we cannot know ourselves. And so the world is filled with men and women, scholars and pastors, who deny the fall, deny the impact it's had on our bodies, our minds, our logic, everything. And so therefore, they do not know themselves, and they don't know their students, they don't know their parishioners, and they certainly don't know God. And so here we come to, uh, I think that the French word is the denouement. Here we come to the working out, the end, the, the inevitable conclusion of the fall. And this is where the father comes into the room where everybody's having a hissy fit and yelling and denying that anybody did anything wrong. And God comes in and he just goes, bam, bam. Bam, bam. And nobody says anything. That, that's over. You know, Adam said, the woman that you gave to me. You know, that's an excuse. The woman you gave me, she gave me the fruit and I took it and they ate it. And now that, that, all the words are done. The mouths are shut. And now God decrees the consequences. First to the snake, the serpent second to the woman, and third to the man. Now, why first to the snake? Well, because the snake is the lowest on the totem pole. You start with the youngest child, and then you deal with the middle child, and then you deal with the eldest child, right? And that's what God's doing here. But they're not children, it's the serpent. In other words, an animal who is created to be ruled by man, and then the wife who is under the authority of husband, and then Adam who is the federal head. All right? Verse 14, the Lord God said to the serpent, so we start with the animal and we start with the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every burst of the field. So the serpent is notorious, notorious for being more cursed than any other animal. On your belly you will go, and snakes do go on their belly, and it's not something that uh, snakes are proud of, and dust you will eat. Again, it's nothing that you would be proud of, right? All the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. So the condition that God curses the snake with is that he will always go around on his belly and that he will always eat dust and that there will always be hatred and hostility between the snake and man. Now, in the first service, I said that this is the reason that every man or woman who loves snakes is twisted. You know, people that keep snakes are a freak of nature. 
And so I, I felt my pocket buzz in between the services. And I have this, uh, it, was, it was Alex Costa telling me it was his birthday. No, I'm not calling you. No, Alex didn't send me a text that it was his birthday. You can turn off the sound on it. And so here is the text I got. It's from D. Wayne Pinckney. He says, I have a snake. Does that make me a freak? And the answer is yes. (laughs) We know that there is an enduring enmity between man and snake. And this is part of the curse of the fall. It's very interesting at this point that five centuries ago, Calvin is writing about this, this, uh, this statement of God, and Calvin says that um, one of the reasons that the snake is cursed like this is because the snake did not adhere to his, his order in creation. That the snake was to be under man, but the snake usurped the authority of man by being used by the devil as the means of the man's destruction. And so part of the reason God dealt with the snake in this way is that the snake had violated his proper order. And I just wonder how many pastors today would, 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 would preach that. I wonder whether we are especially careful and studious at the points of Scripture that violate our conceits, or whether those are the places that we take the edge off and we just kind of pass, jump over. I mean, there's so much in this text here to preach about. Why preach about the fact that the snake had violated his subordinate status to man? Well, maybe because of the environmental movement. Maybe it would be helpful to hear that today. But Calvin didn't have any environmental movement five centuries ago. And yet he was very careful to make that point. So the snake is told... Number one, he'll go around on his belly. Number two, he'll eat the dust. And number three, there will be constant hostility between him and the descendants of Eve. And then this statement is added. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. Now, if any of you are using a new international version, you'll see that the same Hebrew word, which is translated in the NASB, bruise, is translated bruise and crush. A number of Bibles do that. Even though it's the same Hebrew word, they'll give two different English words. Now, why are they doing that? Well, they're doing that because they want to make it clear that the hostility between the descendants of Eve, the seed of Eve, and the seed of the snake are not going to be in perpetual equilibrium. There won't be a truce. And they want to show that eventually the snake is judged, that the devil in the serpent is judged that the devil will lose, that God is not making a statement about the perpetual dualism of good and evil in his cosmology. Okay? And so they change the words, but you don't really have to change the words. You can use the same word, bruise, because in the rest of the statement, it's very clear who will win, right? Look at it again. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. And so what we see is that this is a statement about the curse of the snake. 
And it can't be the curse of the snake if the snake is told that there will be enmity and that, that man will never win. And so if you go forward a number of centuries, you'll find that, that Jewish scholars say that this is the first proclamation of the coming Messiah in Scripture. And that Jesus will crush the head of the serpent. And then, if you keep going forward, you'll run into the New Testament also making this theme clear of the killing of the serpent. And then you go forward and you'll find that the early church fathers had this as the theme in their preaching in the first few centuries. And so, for instance, we read in the New Testament about the serpent, it says this. It says... Excuse me. Romans 16:20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. And then in Hebrews 2, therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and then. In Revelation 12, we see an extended passage that has to do with the crushing of the serpent. There it's translated first as dragon and then as serpent, as snake. And we see the prophecy of the coming day when God is going to wipe out the devil and the serpent. That the devil and the serpent are going to do everything they can to lead a rebellion that it's terminal against God but that God will be victorious. And then we see in Scripture that in the, in the new heavens, in the new earth, that one of the defining characteristics of this joyful time that all believers are headed to is that the lion and the lamb will lie down together and that a little child will be able to play next to a serpent's hole. You know, that, that a little child is not going to have to be afraid of snakes. So the enmity is going to end. But it's not going to end in a truce. It's going to end with God victorious. And until God is victorious, the serpent and the devil are going to do everything in their power to oppose God and to be victorious over God. And so this is the the theme with the serpent. We read, um, for instance, Justin Martyr Uh, the early church father, in a sermon, actually in his dialogue with Trifo, saying, for the spirit of prophecy by Moses, the spirit of prophecy by Moses, he's speaking about the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible written by Moses. He's speaking about this text that we're studying, written by Moses. He says here, the spirit of prophecy by Moses does not teach us to believe in the serpent, since it shows us that he was cursed by God from the beginning, And in Isaiah, we're told that he, the serpent, shall be put to death as an enemy by the mighty sword, which is Christ. Jesus is going to crush the serpent. And then we also say, his his, uh, work against heresies, Irenaeus says, and the Lord summed up in himself this enmity, Jesus, when he was made man from a woman and trod upon the serpent's head. And so Jesus is the seed of the woman, and Jesus crushes Satan. The God of peace, Romans 16, 20, will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. Now let's move on to the woman. She was created for a purpose. 
Now remember, we talked about the purpose of the animals. The purpose of the animals is to serve man. Man is the crown of God's creation because man has the image of God. And so God commands man to rule and to subdue the earth. He doesn't command him to pollute it. He does command man to rule it. And so there's an order between animal and man, and now there's an order between woman and man. So next he moves to woman, and the Lord God had said that she was to be a helper to man. We read in in Genesis 2.18, the previous chapter, the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone, I will make him a helper suitable for him. And so we know that the order of creation is animal, man, man and woman, generically man, and then we see that the order is Adam, helper. All right, that's part of who Eve is. She is a helper to Adam, all right? And then we saw in our text that we read this morning in verse 20 that the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all the living. Now, remember how... you remember how we're just so, so, so um, sophisticated that we believe that man is to serve animal instead of animal serving man. You know, the, the little frogs and the spiders are being threatened by man, and so we have to vacate North America. We have to move off this continent because there is a great horned, yellow-bellied sapsucker that is going to die if we continue to live here. Now remember, I'm not arguing for polluting creation. I'm against it. But you see how every single thing that God sets up as a part of the order, the distinctions of his creation, we are again we are against, we are opposed to. We, it is our knavish interest to flip everything upside down that God has set right side up. And here it certainly is true that when we come to these two callings of woman, which is to be a helpmate and to be a mother, our culture is just in this like hissy fit of trying to overthrow this order of creation. If you were to ask a hundred women out on the street who had been educated, what they wanted to do with their life, every single one of those women would think in her mind, I want to get married and have children, and every single one of those women would never, ever let those words out of her lip. <laughs> Lips. She would never say, I want to get married and have a job. She'd tell you that she's going to be a marketing uh, person at some, you know, if she's delusional, a Fortune 500 or Fortune 50, 100. Uh, She's going to tell you that she's going to be an opera star. You know, she's going to tell you that she's going to be a doctor, a nurse, a respiratory therapist, that she's going to be a teacher, that she's going to be this, that, and the other thing. And what we know is that woman is created to be a helpmate and a mother. But 
We also know that from the time they're born, women in our culture are told that they must not aspire to be wives and mothers. That is such a low and disgusting aspiration. That is an expiration. That is not an exhilaration. In other words, that's disgusting. Only stupid homeschool women want that. And so I've spent my life asking women what they do. And for the first 15 years of ministry, if it was a mother, she would always say, I'd ask him, you know, do you work? And she'd always say, no. Or I said, do you have a job? No. And then I'd always say, so what do you do? And she'd say, well, I'm just, just a mother. Just a mother. And I would always say to her, so that means you sit around and eat bonbons, watch soap operas, and twiddle your thumbs, right? And she'd get this righteously indignant look on her face and said, no, I said I'm a mother. And I say, but you just said that you don't work and that you're just a mother. How have we as men allowed our culture to do this to our precious mothers and daughters and wives? I don't fault women. I fault you men. You have given in on this, and you're the ones that are responsible for the women, the glorious women of our culture who have given themselves to being our wives and the mothers of our children and who are ashamed of it. And all it requires for them to continue to be ashamed of the calling that God has given them is for you to just be silent lazy and fearful. And yet here we see what God's calling is for women. We just saw it. Call Eve because she's the mother of the living and she's to be a helpmate. And so negatively, we know these are the callings also because of the curse. Because look what God does to curse him. God doesn't say, you know, your boss, you know, Arthur Anderson, if it were still there, is, is going to make you make coffee, <laughs> is going to pat you on the bottom. You know? In other words, the sexual harassment in, in the workplace, you know? That's not the curse God gives woman. God gives woman the curse precisely at the point of her order of creation. And so it said... Then to the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children. And so the first place she receives the curse is in childbearing. And so you go through scripture and all through scripture you will find that if there's ever a point of describing pain, it's likely that the pain will be described by the author of scripture being inspired by the Holy Spirit to speak of the pain of childbearing. For instance, Isaiah 21.3, for this reason, my loins are in anguish, or actually are full of anguish, 
pains have seized me, and then what? Like the pains of a woman in labor. And then he says, I'm so bewildered I cannot hear, so terrified I cannot say. And it's all through scripture. And so this is the first part of God's curse of woman. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children. And then what's the second half of the curse? Well, the second half of the curse is, yet your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Now, a lot of people argue about what's going on here. And because we can't stand women to be wives and mothers, we can't stand to have man to rule over creation, you know, in order of man and animal, We also can't stand the fact that in the relationship of man and woman, there's an order and that the man is over the woman in authority. We can't stand it. And so devious scholars who claim to be Christians, who claim that they honor the word of God, will say that the reason that woman now is under the authority of man is because of the fall. And you say, because of the fall, and they say, yeah, didn't you read it says, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over her. See, there it is. He's ruling over her, and and that's the fall. And so when you become a Christian, you're released from that. You know, be released. You know, it's it's the evangelical scholarly Benny Hinnishness. And so they come along with this verse and they say, this verse shows that authority is the result of the fall. And that wives submitting to their husbands is the result of the fall. And if you become a Christian, the Holy Spirit releases you from the fall. And the more you become holy, the less you'll have to submit to your husband and the less your husband will make decisions for you because you'll be, come on, released. (laughs) Now listen, guys. I'm not taking cheap shots at this. Anytime... I speak this way about sinful doctrine, sinful teaching of Scripture. Before I do it with you, I've done it to these scholars. I am not ashamed of making fun of this because it's such an oppressive lie on you in the church today that it helps you for me to make fun of it. It is ludicrous. It is hilarious. It is stupid. It is foolish. And you need to hear those words about this. You don't need to hear me saying, you know, my honorable friend with a PhD from Cambridge here, and I have a disagreement over this. No. At this point, he's dishonorable. At this point, he's ignorant. At this point, he's a fool. Right? Right? 
Now, how can I say this? Well, I say it first of all because in 1 Timothy 2, we read this. Now, I want you to understand, if you have a New Testament verse interpreting an Old Testament verse, you have what I call the double whammy principle of scriptural interpretation. Because the Holy Spirit is interpreting the Holy Spirit. And so this is doubly inspired, right? It's not really, but you get my point, okay? So the Apostle Paul is dealing in the church with feminism. He's dealing with women who are teaching and exercising authority over men. And he says that's not to be. And here's why. He says, verse 12, 1 Timothy 2, but I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Notice he does not say I don't allow a wife to teach or exercise authority over her husband. He says categorically, I don't allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man in the church. Notice, he doesn't say in the church. He just says, I don't allow it. Now, was he the emperor of Rome? No. So he didn't have a say over whether a queen would rule Rome or a king. He didn't have a say over whether they would have a centurion that was a woman, a general, a corporal. But where he had authority, and where was it? It was the church. Where you have authority, you are to live this out. Now, does that mean that if we have... (laughs) Does that mean that if we have a choice between, say, for instance, uh, a handsome Mormon and Hillary Clinton, that because he says, I don't allow that, that we will vote for the handsome Mormon instead of Hillary Clinton? No. If Hillary Clinton says, I'm pro-life, I will vote for Hillary Clinton over a handsome Mormon. And you say, you're an idiot. The handsome Mormon's a Republican. I say, no, he's not. And you say, yes, he is, and then we're off and running. But here, listen, my point isn't to get involved with Romney and Clinton. My point is to say to you that sex is not the only thing in life. And so we have to make all kinds of decisions. But don't you dare tell me that sex doesn't matter anywhere except the church and the privacy of your home. I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over men, but to remain quiet for, okay, these are the reasons, for it was Adam who was first created and then Eve, and it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Okay, so the Apostle Paul, dealing with feminism, where women are exercising authority over men and teaching men, says, I don't allow it because why? Because God cursed Steve saying he will rule over you. Is that what he said? No. He says Adam, whoop. (laughs) He says Adam was created first and then Eve. In other words, this is in the Garden of Eden prior to the fall. This is in the state of perfection. This is before sin. This is before lies. There was an order. And the order is Adam was created first, then Eve. And so listen, brothers and sisters. Your job in life is to live out loud the order of creation. Your joy is to live out the order of creation. 
Your privilege is to live out the order of creation. Now, does it feel like a privilege and a joy? No. Are you ashamed of it? How many of us are ashamed of God's order of creation? You're all lying. I know you're ashamed of it. You're ashamed of it if you even open your mouth to say no to your wife. Now, I'm going to ask again, how many of you are ashamed of it? Should you be? (laughs) No, don't be ashamed of it. It's part of the order of creation. And you know, one of the reasons you know that you shouldn't be ashamed of it is that the Trinity lives this out. The Trinity has the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And the Bible tells us that Jesus will lay everything at his Father's feet to his Father's glory. Jesus told us that he lived to do the will of his heavenly Father. And I just wish that Gordon Fee had been there. He's a notorious uh, scripture interpretation professor. I just wish my, and I know him real well, I wish Gordon Fee had been there to tell Jesus that that was so demeaning to him, you know, that he would talk about being obedient to the Father. If only Dr. Fee had been there to explain to Jesus that he should not lower himself to speak that way. Or to say to Jesus, look, you have to live with certain limitations here on earth in your incarnational state, but when you're raised up to the glory of the heaven, you're not going to be seated at the right hand of God. God's going to be seated at your right hand. Or there will be no right hand. And you know, don't you, that I'm quoting scripture which tells us that he's seated at the right hand of his father. And let me tell you, the right hand is not the throne. Now, it is true that all the members of the Trinity are equal. But have you ever heard scripture tell women that they're not equal to men? Does not it say in Galatians 3.28... That in Christ there's neither slave nor free, Jew nor Greek, male nor female. We're not dealing with the question of equality. We're dealing with the question of order. And Americans cannot get it into their head that there can be distinctions of order and equality. It's like, nope, does not compute. And it doesn't compute because you've been indoctrinated from the time you were born in American political ideology. You are not less than President Barack Obama. But he is your authority. You are equal to him. You are not equal to him. (laughs) Just try to climb the fence at the White House. (laughs) You know, all of a sudden, distinctions will be very clear. (laughs) You know, you ain't him. (laughs) And he's not coming out to find out who wants to talk to him. All right, so authority is not the result of the fall. Authority is in the Trinity. Authority was in the garden prior to the fall. Authority is not bad. You know what's really bad? When there isn't authority. That's bad. In heaven, there will be authority. In the Garden of Eden, there was authority. And as long as a woman is a woman and a man is a man, she has a subordinate 
place to stand with respect, not just to her husband, not just with her father, but with men. And when I say that, people have hissy fits. They go, are you telling me that my wife has to submit to any man that tells her what to do? And I go, yeah, that's what I'm telling you. Come on, people. What makes this pig ignorant when it comes to sexuality when we're all smart everywhere else? Of course I'm not saying that every woman should submit to every man. <laughs> this is ludicrous, you know? What I think is every woman should submit to my wife. No, no, I'm just kidding. That's a joke. Every woman should submit to Joyce Huck. No, that wouldn't be bad. Joyce had determined she was going to be the first woman president of the United States when she was a young woman. And I wish she was. I can't think of anybody that would do as good a job. Listen. You ask me, how does a woman live out her womanhood if she's not married? And I say, look, it's difficult, but don't you think that she should be a woman with men? And you say, well, yeah. And I say, how? And what are you going to do? Tell me, well, I think she should be brash. No, why can't she be feminine? And you say, what's femininity? And I say, well, I don't really know. I'm really scared out of my wits to say. Um, I don't know. What do you think femininity is? I mean, you know, maybe we should ask my wife. How can we get so stupid with sexuality when we're so smart everywhere else? Don't you know what femininity is? Can't you live out being created as a helpmate to Adam? You say, well, Adam's not my husband. I say, yeah, he is, Don. <laughs> I thought that was pretty funny. It's not in the manuscript. <laughs> this is Don, and her husband is Adam. Wave your hands, yeah. So... <laughs> Listen, I'm 61 now. I have never, never lived according to the word of God and regretted it. Never. What does the world have that makes us want to give up the order of creation so that we can be like the world? Had a man two nights ago sobbing as he described to me how he had destroyed his marriage. And I knew it was coming before he said it. He's not in this church. And I knew it was coming. His wife divorced him because of alcohol. I knew it was coming. And then he really started crying and told me how his wife had killed two of their unborn children. And so he would never be a father. What does the world have that causes us to be ashamed of the order of creation? What does the world have? Does the world have beautiful marriages? Does the world have husbands that love their wives? So I'm writing my, I'm preparing to preach this, and I'm thinking to myself, okay, so like 
Your desire will be for him and he will rule over you. And so this is part of the curse. So if we were to want to say that we will not submit to the curse, right, right? His, your desire will be for him. He will rule over you. And we were to say, we were rebels, and we were to say, well, I don't want to submit to that. That's stupid. Why should God be able to ruin my life? What would we be? And because I live in 2014, immediately I'm thinking, I'll be a lesbian. Right? I will not have any desire for him and he will not rule over me, right? And so have lesbians escaped the curse of God on their sex? (laughs) No. And you say, well, yeah, they have. And I say, no, they haven't. You say, why? And I say, well, (laughs) I mean, I don't want to say it. It's so embarrassing. But they try to embarrass me for for being biblical, so I'm going to say it. You know what the defining reality of a lesbian's life is? Man! (laughs) You know what the defining reality of an atheist is? God! Come on. Wake up. They have fights over whether or not they can bring their male children to their gatherings. Does that sound like people who have been freed from masculinity? Every lesbian relationship has what? It has a man. Butch. And men that try to get away from women, what do they have? Woman. They sashay. What are they? They're women. You understand this? Don't worry. It's not me that convinces the heart of a man or a woman of the truth of the word of God. It's the Holy Spirit. And if the Holy Spirit doesn't work in your heart, you'll reject the truth of God. So don't ever be afraid. You don't ever want me preaching in my strength. You want me to focus precisely where the word of God cuts against our culture. That's what you want. Now listen, if you're thinking that the reason that I'm speaking this way about homosexual men and homosexual women is because I don't know any, (laughs) trust me, I do. Trust me, they're in our church, and I love them. And the first people I would say this to is them. Because why? Because they're in the bondage of rejection of God's truth. And they need to get in touch with their manhood, with their womanhood, with their masculinity, with their femininity. They need to learn to confess their sex. They need to learn to confess femininity. They need to learn to confess masculinity. Do you understand this? Why? Well, because God made us this way, and it is our privilege to live by God's standards instead of the standards of this world. Okay? And if I were doing, well, 
All right, so he tells her, your desire will be for him and he shall rule over you. Now, does that mean that we're released from her desire for him and that we're released from his ruling over her? No, what it means is that the desire that she had for her husband prior to the fall is now corrupted, and the ruling that he had over her prior to the fall is now corrupted. So her desire is now corrupted by sin. His ruling is now corrupted by sin. There is no such thing as a good husband, and there is no such thing as a good wife after the fall. Now, I don't mean that there isn't any such thing as a good husband and a good wife. What I mean is, if anybody tells you her husband's just the perfect leader, I say baloney. Because his ruling has been corrupted by the fall. And if anybody tells me they have the perfect wife, I say baloney. This is post-fall, and you are a sinner, and there is no such thing as a perfect husband or a perfect wife since the fall. Now, Are you all with God? Not me. Are you with God? Are you with God on this? This is not a question of you being with me. I have not said anything that is not rooted in the word of God, and if I have, you tell me. And so this is not a personal political statement of a conservative church. This is the minimal commitment to the word of God that all churches for 2,000 years have had, Christian churches, okay? Now, we finally come to Adam, and this is what he says to Adam. He says to the man, you can see I've skipped a lot. Then to Adam, he said, verse 17, because you have listened to the voice of your wife. Now, I just love that. Isn't that wonderful? And so what we can get from this is that no man should listen to the voice of his wife. Right? How come you get so stupid when it comes to sexuality, but you're so bright everywhere else? Of course, I'm not saying that you shouldn't. Neither is God. But God is punishing Adam for listening to the voice of his wife. But it's not really listening, it's obeying. This Hebrew does not just mean that the ears are unplugged. It means that you listen and do. And so what he's really faulting him for is going the direction of his wife instead of the direction of God. You remember how Eve is man generically and therefore is over animal. Remember that. Adam is over Eve, and so the snake goes after his superior, and the woman goes after her superior, and God faults her superior for submitting to his inferior. Not inferior ontologically. In other words, not inferior in his being, inferior in the way that they relate to each other. And so Adam is punished and cursed because he submitted to his wife and ate from the tree that was forbidden him. All right? Because you listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying you should not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you. You know what's interesting? 
I just don't even believe in reading modern commentators on Scripture very often because they just miss everything. Do you know what all the modern commentaries would miss on this? Do you know what the old commentaries talk about here? The old commentaries go on and on and on about how fertile, how fecund, how fruitful creation was prior to the fall. And that God removes fruitfulness from creation, from the ground, because of the fall. That God made the ground to just volunteer. You know, you think about where there's been soybeans and corn, and and then soybeans are planted, and there's volunteer corn coming up in between the soybeans. Right? That's the way the whole earth was prior to the fall. Everywhere you turned were trees that were good to eat with fruit. Every tree had its fruit. There was no tree that didn't produce fruit. We had all these little midget fruit trees my mother was so excited to buy when we moved to our house, and they stood there for 10, 20 years and never produced one stinking piece of fruit. (laughs) But that never happened in the Garden of Eden. But now, cursed is the ground. And what happens to the ground? The ground now has thorns and thistles. What are thorns and thistles? They're fruitless. Have you ever gone up to a thorn or thistle trying to find an apple or a fig or a date? I remember when we were vacationing in the barrier islands off of Georgia, And uh, there was a dune between where we were staying and the beach. And Hannah and Taylor went running across the dune. And there were little discernible places that were clear, just sand, paths. But, you know, there there wasn't a lot of vegetation. And all of a sudden, you just hear this incredible screaming. And there's the one child in, in my family that's absolutely not my favorite. Hannah. You know, and she's screaming bloody murder standing in the middle of these nasty, nasty, uh, I don't know what they were, sandbirds. It was unbelievable. And they were hurting her, and so her inclination was to get out of the sandbirds, but if she moved even slightly, it got worse and she got more. This is nature refusing to serve us and rather punishing us following the fall. And then you have to go in. And how do you get to her without you going through the same agony she's going through? This is creation. This is nature following the fall. Now, what's the application of this for us? You just know whatever scripture says, we're the opposite. And so today, we have lifted fruitlessness up to the level of being the good and bearing of fruit to be the bad. And you say, no, we haven't. We pay money for apples. And I say, yeah, you've got a point there. We haven't begun to prophylact apple trees, to contracept apple trees. Right? And you say, well, tomatoes. I say, okay, you got a point. 
But how about those pictures at night on television where these mournful cats and dogs look at you? Have you spayed your cat? And then how about women? How about women? It's almost the definition of being a Presbyterian church today that we prophylact our women. That's what it means to be Presbyterian. Why? Well, because you only should have as many children as you can educate properly. And so, you know, the wonderful thing about it is that you go to the old commentators, the old Bible scholars, and they will tell you that God, it, that part of the curse, that the blessing of the Garden of Eden was that it just was willy-nilly fruitful. And that the curse after the fall is that the fruitfulness is gone. Or that it's attended with pain. That no longer does the earth simply yield its fruit but the ground doesn't, the woman doesn't, nothing does. The woman has pain in childbearing, and the ground yields thistles and thorns, and the man has a real hassle trying to provide for his wife and children. Right? And so what Christians today do is Christians say, okay, we're not going to have children. Or we're going to have one child, or we're going to have two children. We're going to keep close, close, we're going to keep, we're going we're gonna to shut it down. You know, we're going to do what's, what's reasonable. And I say, whose reason? You say, mine. You say, how about God's? If God says children are a blessing from the Lord, happy is the man whose quiver is full. Do you think you're the one man who will be happy without your quiver full? And you say, oh, I don't think it. I know it. I can't bear the thought of having to work hard enough to provide for 10, 20, 30 children. <laughs> and I say, yep. Yep, 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 yep. And so God will give you what you want. God will give you what you want. But the man who knows that his sinful heart wants one or two children and lives fruitfully with his wife, God will give him what he wants. The blessings of heaven and earth will pour down on him. And then the final thing is what? What is the final thing? By the sweat of your face you will eat bread. Work is not um, the result of the fall, okay? You're not justified playing video games because it says you'll earn your living by the sweat of the brow, so you're going to show God and not work, all right? No, work is a blessing. By the sweat of the brow you will eat bread, Till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you return. And so what's the final thing in the curse of the serpent, of Eve, and of Adam? And then of Adam, and the, and, and the curse of the ground, and fruitfulness, and then finally, where do we end up? Where do we end up? What is it? Come on. It's death. So I keep telling you, I've been listening to Boswell's Life of Johnson. And they have all these themes that they talk about. This is, you know back in the 1700s. You know, one of the most frequent themes that these two unbelievably erudite, educated men have, they talk about it all the time. You know what it is? It's the fear of death. It just comes up constantly in their talking. You know what Samuel Johnson says about the fear of death? He says it's universal. 
And Boswell then will say, well, I've known some men that aren't afraid to die. And Samuel Johnson then will say, you know something? The people who are really terror-stricken of death are the ones who say they are not afraid to die. So what's going on in America today when everybody says they're not afraid to die? What's going on in America today when everybody says that death is just a natural process? What's going on in America today where we send people to die to the hospital and put them behind a screen in the intensive care unit where even their pastor can't get to them? What's going on in America today where you go to funerals and it's clear that most people today, what they want from a funeral is lots of laughter? What's going on in America today where everybody is beginning to be cremated? What does cremation do that goes along with everything else about death in America today? In America today, just like man-animal, just like Adam and Eve, just like fruitfulness, we are always flipping upside down what God says. And God says what about death? God says death is a curse. And we are doing our dead-level best to turn it into a blessing. And you know something? People, it's whistling in the dark. Because I trust Scripture, I've got your number. And because I've grown up with a lot of death. And death is a terrible enemy. And don't you ever try to lie to me about this. Because I've lost my brothers and my father and my mother. And I now have muscle memory about death. I know exactly how I will feel the next time I'll lose a loved one. And I hate it. I hate it. And then you go to funerals and you sit there and you make jokes and you laugh and I say, liar, liar, liar. You want to sit there under the cross of Jesus Christ as he breathes his laugh, his last breath, and you want to laugh there? You want to mock him? He he saved others. He can't save himself. You want to cheapen the death of Jesus by saying that you're not afraid to die? At least John Donne had the sense to say, death be not proud. You know what the Bible calls death? It calls it the last enemy. And you know what the Bible tells us about death? The Bible tells us that Jesus Christ holds the keys to death and hell. You know why the world denies that death is evil and an enemy? Because the world does not believe in Jesus. And so the world has to come up with lies to cover the final lie. The world's denied manhood and womanhood. The world's denied fruitfulness. The world's denied 
you know, the species of man versus the rest of creation. The world's denied work, the world's denied pain, the world's denied absolutely everything about God's creation. And when it comes to death, and Jesus, God says, in the day that you eat of that tree, you will surely die. The world says, I will not die. And you say, oh, no, they don't say that. And I say, yeah, they do say that. They say, I am not afraid to die, which means I will not die. And I say to you, listen, every man, the Bible says it's appointed unto man once to die and after that the judgment. And all over the place today, are men who are ordained to the gospel ministry, who are Presbyterian, who are saying that death is good. I was at a conference two weeks ago where a guy got up and spent an hour talking about how good death was. And all I could think of was, this man is old. And he's an intellectual. And intellectuals think that if they think something, it makes it true. And he told us, Presbyterian conservative pastors, that in the Garden of Eden, prior to the fall, there would have been death. And I was sitting there thinking, he's old, and he's an intellectual, and he's trying to, you know, create something that fits his position in life and what he faces. But I was trying to figure out, how do you get death in the Garden of Eden prior to the fall? And then I heard him, twice in five minutes, what he said was, in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve were breeding like rabbits. And if there hadn't been death, if there hadn't been death, the Garden of Eden would have been just, I kid you not, he said it. Would have been, would have been filled with people. I mean, a Presbyterian minister, conservative. And I didn't think I had heard it right the first time. So he said it again within three minutes. The rabbits, the filling up of the Garden of Eden, there would have been death. And God said what? God said, in the day that you eat of it, what? You will surely die. And then also the Bible tells us that in the Garden of Eden, every tree was given to Adam and Eve except two? No, one. What was the name of the tree? It was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What other tree is named in the garden? The tree of life. What did we read at the end here? We read, what does God say? He drove the man out, and at the east garden of Eden, he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword, which turned every direction to what? To guard the way to the tree of life. In other words, in the garden of Eden, prior to the fall, was the tree of life, and Adam was free to eat of it. Now I'm going to end. Listen, I will not continue to preach as long as I'm, I've been preaching the last few times I've preached. 
the reason I'm preaching so long is how do you get through the issue of Adam and Eve, the issue of work, the issue of fruitfulness, the issue of man versus animals, the issue of death. I mean, this is like, if you were to drop a nuclear bomb in the United States of America that would blow to smithereens the pagan ideologies that have corrupted the church today, it's Genesis 1 to 3. At every point, we're in rebellion against God. Do you see this? And so my question is, who are you going to trust? You going to trust God, or are you going to trust the PhDs? You know, NPR, every single story. And we have with us today Professor so-and-so from such-and-such. Good evening, Professor. Who are you going to trust? You know, Billy Graham used to say, the hour of decision is upon you. Well, the hour of decision is upon you. And death is an enemy. And it is the end of every man. It is appointed unto man once to die and after that the judgment. And if you will look at death as an enemy you are then able to flee to the cross of Jesus Christ. If you'll admit that death is an enemy, then you'll flee to the cross of Jesus Christ. Because who else has... Are you ready? Come on, you should know the Bible. Remember, Peter said... Jesus says, who do men say I am? Well, some say a prophet, some did it, did it. But who do you say I am? Well... Thou art the Christ, the Son of the Most High God. And Jesus says, you're right, and upon this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against her. And Jesus is the Christ. And Jesus one time said to all his disciples, Unless you eat my body and drink my blood, you shall have no part of me. And you remember what happened that time? Everybody left. All his disciples left. But again, the disciples, the 12, were left. They stayed behind. And Jesus said to them, are you going to leave me also? And Peter again said what? To whom else shall we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. And so you can separate the entire world into those who fear death and who love Jesus because he has the words of eternal life. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. He that cometh to me shall never die. You'll live forever. And then there are those who... I'm not afraid to die. Death is green, and cremation is greener. And I plead with you to come, come to Jesus. His truth is difficult. <laughs> and it requires our death to everybody around us that is a talking head.
But I'll tell you again, never has anybody lived by the word of God and suffered for it. And you say, well, no, 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 no. You always suffer. Everybody makes fun of you and having lots of children is hard. And I say, I'm talking cosmically. I'm talking big picture. Because every day you have to deny yourself and take up your cross. But every cross you take up redounds to your glory as you glorify your Father in heaven. And happiness? (laughs) You know how many grandchildren I have now? In other words, you know how fruitful God has made this family? Okay, next time, I promise, I'll be disciplined with my time. But go home and think about God's truth. Stop filling your mind with the lies of the world. Don't be the dog that returns to his vomit. Go to Jesus. Trust him. Every word he says is true, okay? Let's come to the Lord's table.